Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 602 Ascot, Ashes, and AI. Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, it's been a while, although I've seen you a lot. <laughs> yeah, again, I, every every podcast episode in recent weeks has started with "It's been a while." But yes, <laughs> it has been a while since we released an episode, and we are we will encouragement for the listeners get back onto our regular pattern now that the summer traveling is will be a little bit more stable and. <laughs> But yeah, Maybe we've seen, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but we can still work around that. We've seen quite a lot of each other, but we have not record, recorded yeah. a podcast episode. I know. Unfortunately, we did not record in person. I thought, I thought there was one night we were going to come back and do it. And I was very excited, but then I just fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You fell and that wasn't, watching. that wasn't watching the Tour de France show. It was. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but no, it was good. Yeah, it was good though. We got to see... You know, Royal Ascot, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit more detail, but a couple of days of Royal Ascot plus a record-breaking T20 in the, in the Vitality Blast, blast. Uh, between Surrey and Middlesex. So we had we got a good, ex- you know, a little bit of experience of, of some great sports. One of the most difficult Royal Ascots of all time, I would say. I don't know if you want to start there. Well, I was going to say, I, I think maybe we just dismiss this guy <laughs> don't talk about it and bring about well, do you want, the bad do you want memories to, do you want me to depress you though slightly before we move on i guess not too much to discuss there weren't i guess it was a year devoid maybe of true greatness from a horse perspective although there's some nice performances and some horses that might go on to prove themselves but it's not like previous years where you maybe ever had stradivarius or baid or something that you felt this was kind of a I mean, you could maybe say Paddington, and to hear on two-time two-time Group One winner. Yeah, Tahira. There's there's Tahira. Yep. You can you can poke some holes in a few of the performances though, but if you really want to depress depress yourself, you you may not have seen this statistic, but if you had bet every single horse one pound on every horse to win based on their Betfair SPs, so literally just blind one pound on every horse, you would have finished the Royal Ascot Festival meeting up 621 pounds and 59p. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Literally one pound on every horse. Betfair SP. Now, obviously, Betfair SP is a little bit different, but it's still an indication that probably even if you'd done normal SPs, you would have done okay. Yeah. You probably lose money because the Betfair SPs will be a little bit inflated, but you wouldn't have lost much money. And the thing is, some people will say, it's, "Well, if you if you've been mostly driven by like two to three horses, though." There was a hundred and fifty to one winner, and a, at, and a, a hundred to one maybe, or like an eighty to one, something like yeah. that. So those are, and and that that's the thing on Betfair that might have been a two hundred to one. The hundred and fifty yeah. to one might have been a two hundred to one, and that's the issue is because. A lot of times when you see statistics like this, you would say, well, if you bet, like, that makes sense. But if you'd bet strategically and kind of seen when you when you had heavy favorites, if you just stuck to those, you could have made even more. But I would say this time around at Royal Ascot, 
there was no predictability. There were times with heavy favorites when a total outsider won, and there were times with heavy favorites the heavy favorite won. So there was really, if I was being honest, I would maybe say Vauban. You maybe have just would have said that race. I can just stick to Vauban and hope for the best. And and you could have increased your profit even more. But aside from the Tiber River, <laughs> you you would have had to have done the top two in the market there for sure. But even then, that's getting wise after the fact, right? Yeah. Maybe Vauban Tahira. Those are maybe the two that could have stuck out as the like, all right, if these two don't come in, I, I can't justify putting one pound on the rest of the, the market. But everything else, you know, there were other fairly short odd favorites that completely missed, missed yeah. the boat. So, Yeah, I mean, in terms of betting, uh, day two of Royal Ascot, will definitely go down as one of my lowest days of my life. <laughs> oh for seven is not a number you want you want to it's be almost, ending your Royal Ascot trip with. Look, it's almost impressive. You know, when I was in high school, I had and I know I've told you this before, but on a multiple choice, we used to have a math teacher on multiple who had multiple choice said, if you can get zero, you get a hundred. So you needed you needed that offer on the betting. There we go. Yeah. That would have been nice. You know what? Next year, we talk to the bookies that we bet with, and we tell them we not only do we want price price adjustment adjustments, but if I don't win a single bet on the day, I want you to give me back ten percent. <laughs> it would be interesting. It would be interesting to see if you could do like a reverse place pod. Can I pick a horse not to place in every race? And if I nail all seven races without a single horse placing, can I win something? Because that would be, that would still be on some days kind of easy because you'd obviously just pick the biggest, pretty much the biggest outsiders in the market. But you'd still have a couple of races where you would, it's difficult to completely rule out a horse place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think what really killed me for day two, which I, I knew it was going to be a bad day, is day one, I had done the traditional thing I do, which is at least put some stake on the American horses just because I kind of have to being the American there, I'll put some money. And then day two, the first race, there was an American horse who was about 10 to one and racing post had actually tipped the horse. And I had read all that and said, no, I'm done with betting the American horses. They haven't come through now in like two years. I'm not going to keep throwing 10, 20 pounds on a horse and just dumping it down. And of course the American horse won. And I, my horse I bet had second and two different people messaged me saying, what a way to start your day, huh? And I had to tell them, go fuck yourself. No. <laughs> but ultimately, this is your issue to a certain extent with that American horse tactic is compared to when we first started going together eight years ago, whenever that was, eight, nine years ago, there were more American horses. And you, you kind of can't afford to just blind bet every no. American horse in the first couple of days because that will be six, seven horses. Yeah. And at best, maybe one of them wins. Yeah. So ultimately, you break even. Yeah. You know. Like yeah, if- you're right. But I guess, I guess, in retrospect, looking back with some hindsight, I could have said the rule is don't bet Wesley Ward horses anymore. <laughs> so you're going to tell me next year you won't bet a single Wesley Ward horse? I want it. I want it recorded right now. I want to see when you've, you know, kind of getting super excited about the sectionals at Keeneland. 
You know I what? I, honestly, I think I will say I will not bet a Wesley Ward horse because, he, because I'll tell you what, black. I was very high on one of his horses that didn't even race the day that we were there. I was very, very high on that horse. And everything sounded like it had traveled well. And this is not coming from him. This was other people who were there, had seen it. It looked great. And I think it got second to last out of 18 horses. So I didn't put money on that, thankfully. But I think that solidifies until he can bring another winner in. I think I'm good holding off on Wesley Ward. Sure. Stamping it. Stamp it because that was a Lady Aurelia horse, too. So that was like the whole, like, I gotta bet it maybe because it's Lady Aurelia and we had so much success with that horse. But no, done next right. year. No Wesley Ward bet. I wish, I wish I had a good like audio drop for future stamp it. All I can come up with is, is this, <laughs> and that's it. That's Wesley Ward horses. That's how we can declare them after every race. But, but yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's tough though, right? Because there is going to be probably almost every Royal Ascot one Wesley Ward horse that on paper looks amazing. And he's obviously going to rave about it. So, you know, what are you going to do? There's going to be two things that are uh, difficult to deal with. A Wesley Ward sprinter and an Australian sprinter. And between the two, you're going to get out <laughs> how you pick which ones you bet on and which ones you dismiss. It's good luck to you. Yeah. Because if you bet them all, you're going to end up being a loser in the long term. But you're going to have every once in a while one that just blows the field away. And you're going to feel like an idiot for not having bet on the, you know, five to one, six to one shot that looked incredible in everything it had done beforehand. But Wesley Ward, I'm done. Speaking of done, we're not going to talk about Live Golf. I know there were the there were the leaked documents. You probably didn't see them. There was the leaked documents about the agreement between. I actually uh, have a Google notification on my phone that blocks any <laughs> websites that have a Live update. <laughs> well, you should do that with Wesley Ward horses too. You should put both of those as blocked. <laughs> but but I one takeaway from this weekend's golf, just as a quick point of discussion, Rory McIlroy came out afterwards because he shot rounds at the at the TPC River Highlands this weekend. He shot a round of 68, 64, 66, and 64, and finished tied for seventh at the Travelers. <laughs> oh, God. And said, I don't particularly like when a tournament is like this. Unfortunately, technology has passed this course by, Right. It sort of has made it obsolete, especially as soft as it is, as soft as it has been with a little bit of rain uh, that we had. So again, like the conversations going back to, you know, limiting the golf ball and stuff like that. When we come to courses like this, they don't, they just don't present a challenge that they used to. And he's, he's a little bit of a fucking complainer, eh? (laughs) Well, so he he just basically said he wants golf tournaments, but he was kind of pushed further on it. He wants golf tournaments to be two under final yeah he wants it to be tight with no one shooting massively low scores tough to make more john rom said he was kind of the opposite john rom says he loves one at 45 under winner yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting i think i prefer i think i'm in the rory mcelroy camp of course you are (laughs) if you had asked me i would have that would have been one of the easiest guesses of this whole podcast I just think it's interesting to watch a golf tournament where a par is where par is 
meaningful. I do think when you watch professional golf and it's like, oh shit, he only got a par. Like, it's fucked. Like that's yeah. everyone else, especially when you're looking at some par fives where it's like, oh, he parred that par five. Like everyone else is eagling this. He's basically just lost two shots to the field. That to me sometimes is a little bit tough. I do prefer knowing that, especially down the stretch when you have a, a like close bunch, thinking if this guy in the lead with six holes to go, if he's got a one-shot lead, if he can just par every remaining hole, he's got a pretty good chance. Yeah, It's going to take something good to beat him versus I, he's got a one-shot lead. He needs to shoot four under on the final six to win this tournament. Yeah, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I like watching both. I like when you see guys that are just crushing every round versus struggling to hold on. But what I would prefer is kind of like what you said in a way is I would like the final nine or at least the final four holes, let's say to be slightly more difficult holes. Cause it is very annoying when you see like a player's two back with four to play. And then they're playing like a drivable par four, a par five that everyone's getting on it too. And like another easy par four that no one bogeys. Like that's annoying when it's like, he's only two back, but it's like, yeah, but this guy that's in front of him is probably going to get another like, minus three in those three holes. So like, it's stupid, you know, like if you put, if as long as the last few holes can make it interesting, whether you're 30, 30 under or two under you, if you can give up strokes on those final three holes, at least it makes it interesting. I think that's a fair point. And this is the other challenge though. This is the difference between designing a golf course for the, you know, regular golfer versus for a tournament for, with professionals. Because I think I agree with you in the sense that we could almost, let's not have an, the 18th hole should never be a par five. Like if we just made that a rule from now on, let's just, you're designing a golf course, 18 should never be a par five. But then for a casual golfer, the 18 being a par five sometimes is kind of nice. Like you've had a pretty terrible round. (laughs) You're, you know, like, oh shit, I want this to be over. Okay, we got a par five coming up. I get to get my driver out, try and rip this down the fairway. If I hit a good drive, I should, maybe I can at least get par. Like I can feel, I can end on a high. And that's the, that's the challenge. Now, I suppose you could say when you're designing a golf course, you could make it in a way that for a, it's a par five for the average golfer and for a professional tournament that switches to a par four. That's crazy to think. You know, Especially considering the tee box is probably going to be like 50 yards further <laughs> back for pros, but it's still going to be a par four. Yeah. But that's, I suppose, an option. But but yeah, it just seems, I don't know, I, I, it's tough. I think I enjoy it more when you are watching golfers struggle. I think it is more enjoyable to watch. Not because I want to see them do badly, but then because it just does make, it makes every shot more meaningful versus guys just finding a fairway, approach shot six yards from the, from the ball. Oh, he made it. Sweet. Oh, this guy missed it. That sucks. I'll counter you with one possible reason why i don't like that and i think you might actually agree is it then gives the average joe reason to believe that Uh, they are as good as the pros because hey i shot a one over yesterday and this guy he barely could fucking shoot par i'm i should be on the tour you know there are people out there that will watch it and think that exact thing there definitely are people out there although i don't know how many average joes are shooting one over par i think that already puts you well above average 
I do agree with you. I, I, I look. I think this is why I prefer watching Lynx golf. For example, I prefer playing Lynx golf, and I prefer watching Lynx golf because you're not shooting on a Lynx course. You're not shooting seven, eight, eight under par. Just the conditions become, you know, too challenging. Your distance is just not going to overcome the kind of undulations as you love of the course or the wind. You know, you're going to have to play the golf, the course more sensibly. So I do think, I think that's why, for example, the Open is normally more compelling viewing than, say, the U.S. Open. Because you might have a U.S. Open where someone wins at 20 under, whereas the most part you're looking at the Open kind of 10 to 15-ish, maybe, for the four rounds. And that's if conditions have been good. Tough conditions, you can all of a sudden switch to, like, two under wins it. So... You know, I think there is obviously that distinction between the type of course, but Rory just wants to be challenged. You know, you got to admire that. He's just saying, I didn't win, but it was too easy. That's that's the kind of mindset that I could totally be on board with. Yeah, he seems to be a little bit of a complainer. <laughs> I mean, life is pretty fucking good for him, so. Yeah, what is he complaining about? Just shut He's... the fuck up and golf, man. <laughs> He's he's still he's still heard about that breakup fifteen years ago. Are you talking about Wozniacki? He broke yeah. up with her. Yeah. Oh, sure he did. That's what he's, that's what he's, he probably complained about it and told everyone that. I think. I mean, her, her career is kind of nosedives post breakup. So I think that's not true. Uh, she came back and didn't she come back and eventually like win another major? Because she was injured and then came back and then won a major and was I think like number one or number two. And then dropped off again. She definitely revitalized her career. And then she had a kid. Well, she's only won one Grand Slam. So, I mean, I'm going to have to try and cross compare. So she won the Australian in 2018, which you're right, is probably post-breakup. Definitely post-breakup. So. Because they both took a nosedive with the breakup. And then she picked it up, and then people were concerned that he wasn't, and he complained about it probably. Uh, so Rory McIlroy reportedly broke up with Wozniacki. Yeah, you're, you're making that part up. <laughs> in a, I didn't even get there. In a three-minute phone call, supposedly, that's heartless. That's fucking... he, he probably just complained to her, and she was like, shut the fuck up, dude. We're done. And he's like, yeah, I broke up with her. So, yeah, 2014, they broke up with each other. Yeah. So this is a great article. There's no right way to end a relationship, but Rory McIlroy may have skipped some steps <laughs> <laughs> and shattered a land speed record in breaking things off with Caroline Wozniacki. He probably then complained that he got charged international fees for the call. Yeah. So this is during when she was in the front. So Wozniacki played tennis in at Roland Garros yesterday, but would have rather been in Belfast asking Rory McIlroy to his face why he left her this way. <laughs> oh, she got broke. He break up he mid tournament. Mid oh man, I knew you guys had a connection. <laughs> I should date Wozniacki. <laughs> How'd she do that year? Not, though, not, not, not that well. good. Not that well. What a line you would have. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. That's just <laughs> you, you and I peas from the same pod. Now she's married to uh, the um, basketball player. Yeah. Fisher? Uh, Lee. 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 
Derek Lee? Da- no. David Lee? David Lee, that could be right. I don't know. He wasn't a very good basketball player. <laughs> He's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's all relative, right? He's probably on a par with Wozniacki. Did he win in when did he when did he leave the Warriors? Did he win a title with the Warriors? I think he probably did. So he probably has an NBA title to his name. It's only one more than I've got. True. Uh, no, uh, nope. we have the same amount. <laughs> it looks like you got the same amount. <laughs> he, no, he must have won one. Yeah, he won one in 2015 with the Golden State Warriors. Uh, he's lucky. So one title, two-time All-Star. Um, he was a first-team All-American in 2001 when he was in high school. McDonald's All-American in 2001 as well. And Mr. Show Me Basketball. In 2001 as well. Wow. <laughs> so he might be slightly ahead of you. Maybe. Probably earned a little bit more money. He's probably taller than 5'11 and a half, too. He's six foot nine. Yeah. He's got me by a few inches. He's got you by a foot. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. All right. What else? What else we got? Um, we have one think- of our favorite. We have one of our favorite topics. One of our most... Vasilis? No. Harry Kane. Harry Kane's future. It's very much up for debate at the moment. And supposedly rumors are that Thomas Tuchel has given him some phone calls and there's the option of him moving to Bayern Munich, which... Interesting. Very interesting. Because for him, from a... It guarantees he wins something. So it kind of... Year one... I mean, no matter what, even if Bayern Munich had a terrible season, they're winning something. They're winning one cup. So you automatically eliminate the the sort of missing element to his CV of one nothing. But it means that he would almost certainly miss out on breaking the all-time Premier League goal-scoring record. I mean, there's a world in which he could go to Bayern Munich for a, two seasons, make his way back to the Premier League, and maybe still break the the record if he went to the right club and if his career was long enough, it's possible. And then it, I guess the question for you, would you rather finish your career? Let's say he wins nothing. Spurs win nothing. England win nothing. But he breaks the Premier League all-time goal-scoring record, which will take a while for anyone to break, unless Holland just spends... His career in England, which I don't assume, think he will. I don't think he will either. So, assuming that isn't the case, it's a record that will probably be safe for at least, say, ten years, possibly significantly longer. Would you rather have that, or go to Bayern Munich, say, win a couple Bundesligas? Let's even throw in a Champions League. But you, it feels like you kind of moved somewhere to win something. Yeah. So I think. It's tough. It's tough because I don't know enough about like European football to really know how much these titles matter. Like for instance, I know a lot about hockey and I know at the end of the day, every hockey player is obsessed with like lifting the Stanley cup. I don't know if it's that strong of a feeling in European football because there are like so many different titles you can win and so many different ways that you could win something, whether it's for internationally for your team or, or domestically in like 
the actual league or in, uh, you know, like FA Cup and all those types I'll, of things. So I'll say I'll say this to maybe simplify it for you. I think if he went to Bayern Munich and he only won the Bundesliga, even say multiple times, but he did not win the Champions League or he did not win a trophy with England, he would need one of those two things. I think people would still say you, you didn't really do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I. Even I think regardless of that, though, I honestly think at this point in his career, I would rather go for the record because at least that way you'll be known always as at least once one time having that record. Whereas I think if you just go off and win the Bundesliga, then it's like, wow, great. Okay, you're now the guy who almost had a record but then just went to get a random title with a team that's stacked and loaded. I, I think if you win earlier, yeah, I, I, I think I would go for the scoring title. I think it's just at this point in his career, he's already going to be labeled the guy who never won trophies, even if he wins one or two. I still think he'll be labeled as the guy who only won one trophy. So just well, go for it. Go for the scoring where, title. But this is the point, right? Because if he went to Bayern Munich for three seasons, four seasons... He probably leaves with, let's say he goes to, to Bayern Munich for four seasons. He probably leaves with four league titles. He probably leaves with, let's say, th- two German Cups. And he probably leaves with one Champions League. Like, that's the reality. That's yeah. probably yeah. what you get in a four-year span. You know, without, that wouldn't be incredible. Then I think he's known as the guy who couldn't win anything in England. But he also becomes the, you know, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But, I think and, I, and, I, I, and I think it goes back to, I think it matters. I think the question would be how much does a Champions League trophy matter to him? Because going there is that's the only realistic thing that might satisfy that need to get a trophy. Yeah. So he's, for context for listeners, so he's 47 goals behind Alan Shearer. I thought you were he's 47 years old. I was like, he's what? Four, he's on 213 Premier League goals. 260 is the record. So two so seasons. Two seasons he should get it. Barring an injury. You think. Yeah. At most three seasons. Three seasons he's guaranteed to break the record, basically. As you said, barring injury. So, you know, that's... And again, that means it's doable for him to... You know, he is 29 years old. He could... He's about to turn... He turns 30 in a month. So he could go to Bayern Munich for two seasons, win a bunch of things, come back to the Premier League, try and get three seasons out, four seasons out in the Premier League and break the goal scoring record. Like if you're his agent or someone in his camp, that's probably what you're telling him. You're like, Harry, you're like, go get the, you know, you know, get 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 get! I was going to say monkey off your back, but you know, go and go and do it, and then, and then you can focus on maybe go back to Spurs. You're the kind of returning, the prodigal son returning to Tottenham after a couple of years abroad with a Champions League under your belt, and you get to try and score fifty goals in three seasons before you retire. That's the maybe the storybook ending, if you're him, but. I think if I were him, I would be saying, can I move to Manchester United? 
break the break the record and win something. Yeah. Like is this is this doable? I think if I'm the only person I think who should be worried is Kingsley Common because he's won a trophy every year. He's Kingsley every, Common? Yeah. AI. <laughs> AI. Kingsley Common. Common. I thought yeah, I said Coleman, but I guess I got Common on the mind. <laughs> yeah, watching too um, much Silo. Uh, yeah, he's nervous. He, he might break his streak. That's true. And if you're Thomas Tuchel, that's you've already got a little bit of pressure on you. Do you want to bring the Harry Kane jinx into the into the mix? Yeah, but yeah, I think I think the likely outcome is he stays where he is. I think if I had to bet right now, where is Harry Kane playing on September first? I think he's playing for Tottenham. But I think, because I guess I think part of him is accepting, because the other calculation he's making in his mind is he gets to be the greatest Tottenham player of all time, which if you leave, you risk losing. You know, everyone will say it's just a special, but if you play your entire career there, you know, minus a, a loan spell, you you really do get to kind of secure your place as a, as a club legend. And also, the thing that would eat away at him, if he wins something with Spurs, it would obviously win, mean significantly more than winning something anywhere else. And the, the last thing he would want, right, is to move to Bayern Munich and then watch Spurs win even the FA Cup. Like, if you told him how bad, like, you go to Bayern Munich and you win the Bundesliga and the Champions League, but in the same season... Spurs finish in the top four and win the FA Cup. Well, you feel like you kind of missed out. And I think part, of <laughs> yeah. him, part of him would probably say yes. I guess while we're talking about potential transfers, it seems like City have pulled the old, let's see how much money Arsenal will waste in a bidding war. And uh, up to, got Arsenal to go up to 105 million pounds for the transfer of Declan Rice, which would break the English record, which was previously held by my boy Jack Grealish at 100 million. Now, yeah, I want to stick straight with that comparison. Do you think one of those is worth more than the other? I think you could make a stronger case at the time that they were sold that Declan Rice is worth more money than Jack Grealish was when he was sold. He's had a longer career in the Premier League. He's younger than Jack Grealish was when he was sold. He's established himself completely in the England team and played yeah. multiple tournaments as a, a key component. They won a European trophy last season, even if it was the least meaningful trophy available. You know, I think you can you can definitely he's got a stronger case for being I don't think either of them are realistically worth that sum of money, but then the reality is football transfer is like it's just monopoly money at this point. Like I don't know in the past you could make oh player X was sold for twenty million and this player's being sold for twenty five million. Let's try and figure out why. This is just well we've just gotta spend money, right? And Arsenal got put into a position. City don't really need him. Arsenal were in a position of if we don't sign him, we look like we don't have money. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is going to really, like, people are going to start criticizing us for 
not trying to buy Premier like players they think would put them over the edge when it comes to winning the Premier League. I still don't know if Declan Rice is the missing X factor, to be now, honest with you. But do you change your prediction now? On Arsenal missing out on the top four. Yes. Um I'll give yeah, you the I, chance. I will say at this point, no. Okay. It does slightly concern me that this might be a huge spending summer for them. Like if you tell me this is the start of them spending 300 million pounds, then yes, I might think think again. But if at the moment it is, they signed Declan Rice and then who else have they signed? Kai Havertz? <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I think I'll be comfortable in being thinking I don't think those are the game changing signings you necessarily need. And that's not being dismissive of Declan Rice, who I think is a very good player. It's just I don't think you know, you need game changing players to really close that gap between them and City. And Declan Rice is a nice foundation player. And he needs game-changing players working around him. You know, it's the same when you look at England in the center of midfield. You have Declan Rice. He can do the dirty work, and it's, but you'd need something like, someone like Jude Bellingham alongside him to be able to do something a little bit more meaningful, the game-changing impact, you know. And I, I, I can compare it to Graham Souness when he was Blackburn manager. They had two talented central midfield players, one who was just hardworking and maybe not super skilled, and the other one who had all the talent and, you know, ability on the ball in the world. And he said, you know, if you if you want the maestro to play the piano, someone has to carry it onto the stage. Declan Rice is the one carrying it onto the stage, and that's fine. But he needs who's the who's the person alongside him. I guess you can kind of argue it's sort of Odegaard, but I still don't think That's really, I don't think City are looking, you know, Pep Guardiola is not sitting right now thinking, oh my God, Arsenal have added Kai Havertz and Declan Rice. We're (laughs) going to need another 10 points to win the Premier League next season. What else have we got from our little sporting roundup? Well, I guess we could talk about cricket. Uh, You had the uh, Ashes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, while we were in England, the first test match, England looked as if they were going to win it at the end after a controversial declaration in the first innings and then looked as if they just needed a couple wickets at the death and Australia managed to string together a nice partnership to get over the line, which made the declaration look even more controversial because you could make a strong case that 30 or 40 more runs England win. So they basically... yep put Australia in a match-winning position, although it's, like we always say, this is a little bit like analyzing the missed field goal in the first quarter. Like, there's a lot of I will say I didn't like it right off the bat. I was against it from the start. Yeah. No, and and it's when does this basball craze go too far? When are you too loosey-goosey with... You know, there are sometimes, and we see this in American football too, right? To for our listeners there, this is a little bit like fully embracing the go for it on fourth down mentality. And there are moments when, as boring as they are, but the tried and tested conventions of a sport or the tried and tested conventions <laughs> for a reason. Yeah. So it's like it's good being like, oh, the statistics say go for it here 
on every fourth and one. Maybe not from your own five-yard line, though. And then this is maybe in the first innings of an Ashes Test match, you don't declare when you easily could have added. You had Joe Root in going well, and you could have just said, swing the bat, add a quick quick fire, 40, 50, maybe even 60 runs. And then we... I always think in the first innings, you know, again, it's one of those cliches. You can't win a match in the first innings, but you can lose it. I do think you can put a match out of a losing position. And England weren't far away from batting themselves out of being able to lose the match in their first innings. And instead, they chose to keep all three potential match results alive. And it's made worse by the fact that they've then not got off to a great start in the second test. And not helped by the fact that in the period between the first and the second test, a lot of the players, relatively minor players who haven't been there, done that, have been speaking a little too much. Like there's too much mouth and not enough delivery in the the matches for my liking. I don't know how you have a player in your team, for example, coming out and saying they're going to win the second test by 150 runs. I don't like, I don't, I like sledging. I think good sledging is entertaining and there's an, there's the mental side of getting under someone's skin in a sport is something you need to do, but having someone like Ollie Robinson, who's effectively kind of a nobody when it comes to international cricket to have him trying to justify why he's telling Kawaja to fuck off after he's out for 143 or whatever it was and saying, well, the Australians have always like naming Australians from 15, 20 years ago, whose response to him was like, I retired when you were, when you were 13, why are you bringing me into the conversation about why you're telling her like swearing at a modern day player? It makes everyone look a little stupid. And this is the issue I have a little bit is there's this risk with this baseball mentality of let's go out there and enjoy ourselves. There's the risk of you need someone to say, shut up for a little bit. Yeah. Let's be, let's be serious and, and let's try and win the ashes because everyone's going to forget the test matches we've won over the past 12 months. If we lose three, nil, four, nil, four, one in the ashes, like no one's going to care. And like what what bothers me about the fact that they declared in those first innings, if you're going to do that, then just literally go all out in those last couple of overs. Like worst case, like bring everyone in, say like, hey, we're going to we're going to declare like we think we're pretty close. Just just go for it. Just if you get a wicket, whatever, but just go for it. These were their last 10 overs. Eight, two, six. Four with a wicket, none, two, three, seven, five, five, twenty declared. How do you finally get a good how do you finally get a good over? Finally get a good over and then that's it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the argument would be from a test match perspective, that's a pretty high run rate. But I do agree with you. You, That's a good you're right, but if the plan is that you're going to declare, then I think that's a low run rate because then your mentality should be, let's try and run up the score in these last 10 overs. Yeah. I mean, you've got a few overs there where you got two in the double digits and you've got sevens and eights. So it's pretty high, but I do agree with you. You'd want a couple more with 
big, big scores to to sort of indicate that it was planned. Yeah, the twenty kind of does, but yeah, you'd want. But that's one over, you know. Like if you had yeah. twelve, fifteen, twenty. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I wasn't against the idea of declaring. You know, we discussed it at the time. I don't I don't mind the idea of trying to get a few overs at opening batsmen in, in, in the sort of in the at the end of the day's play and then get them fresh again in the morning. And in a sense, yeah. like we like we discussed, they had them twenty five or two or whatever it was. So it sort of justified the move in terms of the you know, the short term result. It just didn't seem very well thought out. No. Or planned. Yeah, it, yeah, they 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 could have pushed a little bit harder if that has had been the thought. Like at tea time, they would have they should have known then. Hey, if we get to this, we got this target score in mind that we think is a good score that we're comfortable with. Like, and that's what you need to be doing for a declaration. You need to be basically let's to simplify it. If we get to three hundred, we're fine with three hundred as a score. So if yeah. the next, if the next, if we're all out for three hundred, we're fine. Not let's get to 300 and then accelerate and see if we can get to like 350 quickly. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. It seems like they maybe semi-embraced it and didn't have it be as well thought out or planned as it could have been. But yeah, it it is tough to analyze a first innings declaration and then see when a match literally goes down to the wire and was interrupted by rain to try and say with total confidence that 20 more runs would have changed it or 30 or 40 or whatever. The, the reality is England should have bowled better when they needed a couple of wickets at the end of the match. They had, they put themselves in a winning position and they didn't win from that spot. And I think that's the real, the real shame. And it also makes me slightly mad because you still had root in, in those first innings. Yeah. No, no, for sure. Let, they, let he, Root cook, Eddie. <laughs> is he, <laughs> yeah, he's Russell Westbrook now or something. But, uh, Russell Wilson. <laughs> well, yeah, we're really saying it for Westbrook too. Um, yeah, like, yeah, look, it looks bad when you lose. I mean, this is the thing. You make the, you take the risky decision and you lose. It looks bad. And it's going to look even worse if they then lose this test match as well and they find themselves 2-0 down. And then that is an absolute mountain to climb because winning three consecutive test matches in, you know, in a time of year in England where you're also likely to have some rain disruption. So a draw becomes a possibility just because you might have a day rained out, two days rained out. It's going to put, put them in a tough spot. And then I guess we can discuss the cricket match we went to. But not the actual match. I'm, I don't know how many people are tuning in to listen to our weekday vitality blast commentary. But just the fact of being there and what we think we can do. You said there's no way I can hit one out of the boundary. To hit a six? I mean, are we talking to a real bowler? No, no you got no chance. Of course. If, if I put a... An MLB pitcher on the mound. Can you hit a home run? <laughs> no, but I yeah. didn't. But I didn't claim that I could. No, um, I was just saying if someone like like, like throwdowns, me one. yeah, just yeah. I mean, I think yeah. If you did throwdowns, if I gave you like twenty throwdowns, 
and yeah, you'd hit a six eventually. If I if you told me I want it here, sure, because I've seen you hit a baseball. I know how hard you can hit a ball. So yeah, eventually you would connect with one well enough. It would have to be like like I think my optimal one would be a ball that I can like step into off the bounce and hit it pretty low off the ground. No, I think your best case scenario would be like waist height, like bouncing up to your waist. So you get to do a baseball-esque swing, pulling it. I think that's your best case scenario. That's where you get to use a swing that would be most familiar to you from baseball or from golf. See, I'm thinking more like Vlad Guerrero stepping, like a mix between Vlad Guerrero and Happy Gilmore. That's how I'm hitting the six. I think you got very little chance of that. I think your best case is like, as I said, I think if I could, if you could on the bounce, waist to mid, like sort of strike zone, basically. You know, I think if I if I gave you strike zone, I think that's where you're you're looking at your best chance and just pulling it. And I think if I I think if you did that twenty times, medium pace, you knew it was coming. And you were preparing, you had one shot in your head and that was it. And you got used to the timing. Yeah, I think you'd hit one for six, possibly more out of 20. Also assuming we do like a warm up, right? This isn't just yeah. going out cold. Yeah, I think you'd hit a six. But I mean, does, that's such a... Does Lords or the Oval rent by the hour? Can we test this out? <laughs> <laughs> There'd be easier places to test this before we got there. This is the other question, I suppose, is like, what, which ground are we playing on and, and where are the boundaries? Yeah, because obviously you get boundaries that are optimized for T20 experiences. So the, the, they get pulled in a little bit. So then you're talking about, you know, like 65 meter sixes versus 80 meter sixes. I still think you could hit an 80 meter six. Yeah, I, I think what I, I was most surprised about wasn't the boundaries and people hitting sixes. I actually, I think was how far the run-up is for a bowler. I don't think you really appreciate that when you see it on television. I mean, you see them run a lot, but you don't really see how much ground they are until you see like the side view of yeah. that, like how much ground a bowler runs. I think that's pretty consistent when you speak. I think the two things, I think you're right. There's that. And the other thing that surprises people is like how far a wicketkeeper stands back. Yeah. Because again, I think on true. TV. It looks on, close on TV. On TV, it looks like the wicketkeeper is like, six, seven yards behind the stumps and, and to a, a really quick bowler, you're obviously way back. So like same with slips and stuff. I think it surprises because just the shortening element of the, of the TV. Yeah. yeah I think those are the two things, but yeah, no, I, I yeah, uh, we'll get the chance and yeah, we can try and maybe coordinate and do a cricket video with, with Dan. I'm sure he's, he he's can get desperate. us onto the oval. <laughs> he can get, he, he can get a, you know, maybe get some, you know, he spoke so positively about his experience with uh, various bowlers. Let's see which professional bowler we can get to try and let you hit a six. <laughs> okay, I have another then. What do you think I have a better chance? I think both are very low. Do I have a better chance of let's just bring it down to a boundary? So like even a four. Off a professional bowler or holding the wicket for let's say two overs just not getting out yeah so either you don't get out in 
12 balls, you're facing all 12 balls. Yeah. Or you hit a boundary in those 12 balls. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that the boundary is more like, I don't think you're just doing by anything. pure luck, just that yeah, like, you, you, I, like somehow get a, a, you, a connection on it. You could, ed- I mean, especially if it's a quick baller, you could just edge a four, right? Like there's yeah. something could happen. I'll be honest. I, if, if we're talking match day situation, I don't think you're doing either. You know, I mean, I think the reality is like a spinner would just bamboozle you yeah. because you, you don't know how to read it. So you wouldn't know which way the ball's turning. So you would be, you'd be screwed because you just, you have a ball bouncing and you just don't know which way it's going to go. And so you got no chance. So that would be, even though you'd think you might have a better chance because it's slower, you're, you're just not going to be able to deal with it. And then anyone legitimately quick, it's just going to yeah be too quick for you. And also again, it would as, scare the shit out of me. <laughs> as long as they're not stupid too. Like, do they get a slight scouting report on you? You know, this yeah, they know. Thing. They know. I know. I, I've never Nothing. stepped in front before. <laughs> the empty scouting report is their scouting report. Scouting you know, report is this guy has no scouting report for a reason. I mean, I think they would be able to tell just from the way. Obviously, you held the cricket bat and like took your guard. They would. They would know that you you were a complete novice. But you obviously don't want to be in a situation. You know, you could survive if there was just someone trying to like get you to nibble outside the off stump, and you're not. <laughs> you're like not good enough to even hit it. Right, that's that could save you. You'd need someone to go. I'm going to try and bowl them here, yeah. and I think if I bowl twelve balls at the stumps, one of them is getting through. <laughs> and I guess just the last thing we could say, we probably lucked out on one of the best ever cricket matches ever, but in terms of viewing. But I think regardless people who are listening that maybe one day might be visiting England or something like that. I think it's definitely something people should go to. It's like, I think when you have a sports fan who's non-American that comes to America and they do like the, I want to see America's pastime and go to a baseball game. I think this is a thousand times more fun to go to a cricket match being a non-European or I guess even more specifically, like not from the UK or, like which would be the major one in, in Europe. But yeah. No, the T20 for sure. I mean a test match or or like a you know a 4-day game in in the county championship that would be tougher. Yeah. You might not enjoy it quite as much, but a T20 where it's action packed relatively quick. Fun fun crowd. Good good drinking, good food. Good drinking, good food. I would say and I and I I I was my first time at the Oval. I really loved it. I thought it was a good experience. Nice nice views, food was excellent. Uh, you know, atmosphere is nice. I do think you could make a, a little bit of a slight case. It might have been a bit more enjoyable in a non-London venue where there were maybe fewer finance bros. I think that <laughs> I think the heavy finance bro community at a like London midweek match, you, you could benefit slightly. Like if you were at almost any other ground in England other than Lords, you're probably getting. A slightly more enjoyable not that our atmosphere was negative or not no. enjoyable but i think you're getting a more fun atmosphere yeah. elsewhere let me put it this way our, our our friend who had the best camera had a really nice video of someone hitting a six and he had followed everything the entire way in like his 4k hd camera 
and halfway through the video, there's a finance bro giving the hand job gesture right in front of the camera. <laughs> the <wanker laughs> Completely side. ruins the video. <laughs> well, you you could get that anywhere. I don't want to limit that gesture <laughs> to a finance bro, but it's just just the overall atmosphere. There was a lot of white shirts, backpacks, you know, kind of not focusing on the match as much. That would be the one criticism if you had to pick the negative out of the experience. But overall, you know, I give it a 10 out of 10. And I, do, I will say again, it's not a just a 10 out of 10 because we scored, saw 500 plus runs. Because going back to the Rory McElroy discussion, in a way, the match might have been even more interesting in a Surrey score 160 in Middlesexer because we kind of just you almost became numb to the fact of like, uh, it's going to be a boundary, like every ball, yeah. four, six, four, six, you kind of, but it was exciting because they did, they were chasing. So that was, was just the, the like act of chasing and, and, and running that down was, was interesting. It was, but you got into a scenario where they needed like 11 runs and over and you're like, well, that's easy. Yeah. It was like, that's not a problem. They're going to score 11 and over. Whereas you could have been in a situation where they maybe like nine and over and you're like, oh, that's tough. Yeah, like they they're they're gonna have to try and find a boundary somewhere and stuff. And this again, still fantastic to see an incredibly high scoring game. But and again, to kind of draw comparisons for people who are Americans or non just non cricket fans who don't understand, it's like going to like an NBA game and seeing you know one eighty <laughs> like one eighty one seventy nine. Well, I, what's the highest the, scoring basketball game of all time? I mean, it's going to be higher than that, you know. So the highest scoring game without overtime is, well, I guess the Warriors scored 162. Yeah, 162 to 158. Yeah. So I wasn't that far off. And you got, you got to throw in the possibility of overtime, right? But still, and it's making the argument of what would be a more enjoyable, that or seeing 95-94. Maybe 95-94 because the stops and a little bit more defensive yeah. play kind of adds to the drama down the end versus they're going to shoot a three and make it. They're going to shoot a three and make it. Yeah. Well, this but goes back still... to our arguments of Chiefs versus Bills when I yes. think they're the greatest games of the year and it's 48-45 and you think they're terrible games. <laughs> I don't think they're terrible games. I don't think they're the best games. That's the, that again, that's the, but this is different. If I'm going to, if you're telling me I'm going to go to one NFL game in a year, be in the stadium, and I'm going to take some people who've never been to an NFL game before, then that's the game I want to take them to. So that's kind of the difference. But I don't want to watch a Super Bowl that's 48 45. What if Chad Henney was starting? Would you still want to take him? <laughs> if he's going to somehow muster up 45 <laughs> points, sure. And I guess the other thing is, I mean, I kind of just want to go back because I actually want to make money now that I know that there's a two pound return on all the, the beer cups. One, one pound, one pound. I think Was it, it was. one? It was one, one pound. Yeah, you're right. Because the issue was, is I, I ended up, we didn't even know that was the rule. And then even afterwards, I still ended up with about 10 cups in my hand. Yeah. But it was after the match and it was chaos getting out of the stadium because there's only two exits in the entire stadium. So I didn't even bother at the end of the day. I just actually handed it off to some kid as we were leaving who had like 50 cups in his hand. Well, 
I now appreciate because we obviously got these like gin and tonics walking in and I just dumped my glass at the, at the fever tree stand when I finished it. And people looked at me at the time. I thought they were looking at me in like, who's this asshole just like leaving his empty cup here. Now I realize that they think who's this idiot. Who's like literally just, <laughs> just like, all I had to do for 10 seconds to just stand there. I would have got a pound back. <laughs> exactly. So I think, yeah, it would have been easy for us. Certainly for each of us to get, 10 pounds would have been because yeah. there's just I cups mean, everywhere i mean if you just think about it so i had while we were there i had six drinks yeah and i and i never handed in a cup so already that's just six pounds for me you had a couple between us you know we had like 15 20 pounds that we but just, i also mean there was about just an hour within reaching distance for where we were sitting at least a dozen cups just sitting on the ground. But then do you want to be that guy? Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I looked at those guys me? and I didn't want to be that guy. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you this. I won't be the guy who's like going up and down the rows for 20 minutes. But if you told me within the two row radius of where I am, there's 20 pounds just sitting there, I'll take that. What this really means is if you want to be that guy – you got to be the beer snake guy. That's who you got to be. If you really yeah, want to be. Yeah, give me your cup. Let's do the snake. Give me your cup. <laughs> if you want to be the guy who doesn't look like a loser, but who ends up with a decent amount of money at the end of it, you got to start the beer snake. You got to be like, hey, there's five of us. We can have 16, 17 cups in this beer snake, which is enough to then get momentum for other people to put it in. And then at the end, we're going to have like 100 pounds. Yeah. But we're going to, we're not going to do this. It's, we're going to start this early and it's not going to look like we're collecting cups to make money. We are doing this for the beer snake. Yeah. Like that's, that has to be the move. Which Listen, some of, I don't some care. of the finance. I'll, I'll the, collect it just for the Jaeger bombs we can buy after. <laughs> One, three Jaeger bombs. <laughs> the finance bros in front of us ran the beer snake. Yeah. They and and then well. they threw out the cups because they, who need, they don't need that money. Yeah, that's the real move. That's to get the 200 beer beer snake and then just go, fuck it. I don't even want to wait in line. Because the other, the other thing is you don't really have to wait in line as long as you don't wait to the very end. You have to wait in a line no matter what, but it might not be that. You have to wait in yeah. like the normal beer wait line, which is probably five minutes. So yeah, but you, then you do have to wait there holding 100 cups, which a little bit more difficult than you're making it out anyway has that does that wrap up our sports discussion i don't know do we have some non-sporting topics um non-sporting i've actually watched a lot of television these past few days between readjusting myself off of the jet lag which my whoop has told me affected me <laughs> and then also going back from no physical activity to trying to push my body into shape for the national roller hockey championships in two weeks. I've destroyed my body trying to do so. So I've had a few days where I've had to kind of just sit at home and sit on the couch. So I've watched a decent amount of shows. So the first one, I started Black Mirror. I've done three of the Black Mirror episodes of the five, I think, of the season, five or six. It's a decent season. Um, it's a little different than previous seasons because it's not so, like, futuristic tech 
you know, like warnings about what could happen. It's more like present day stuff. And one is actually uh, past. One takes place, I, I would say, almost in like the what looks to be like the 70s. They don't ever really fully say, but pretty good. I've enjoyed them. They're super depressing. Like you, that is not a show you could ever binge. You watch one and you kind of don't want to watch another one for a day or two. And that's not because they're bad. It's just because sometimes it's just like, oh, that was rough. <laughs> um, have you watched any of them yet? I think I've out black mirrored myself. Ooh, I think the first. Why they're few still se- good. You're right, but I don't know. I think I enjoyed the first few seasons and the premise of it, and I think I felt like it had run its course. Like, I think I've I've got it when it comes to Black Mirror. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, like, they're still just very well done. That it, They're a lot better than other stuff you're going to watch on television. No, I don't disagree with you, and I'm sure if I watched it, I'd probably like it. And there's no consistency in my application of that rule because I watch a lot of TV shows that have been done. Ted Lasso, strong case in point. Ted Lasso had run its course, and I still watch the final season of it. But sometimes you just got to decide, you know. And I, it's a weird time for me because there aren't a lot of TV shows. Like I don't have a ton to watch right now. To me, the reverse, the the most enjoyable aspect of coming back from that week of travel was that I, I, I hadn't listened to a podcast oh, the yeah. entire week. And I just had, it was like, oh, I can listen to podcasts for the next 36 hours. Like I, I got still got, I'm still catching up. It's and nice. That to me, that to me was wonderful. <laughs> just be like, oh, anytime I want to throw one on, I'm cooking, let's throw on a podcast. I'm doing this, let's put one on. I can sometimes... Nor under normal circumstances, I do try and kind of ration like my good podcast. And, you know, you go like, okay, I've got six hours of good podcasts a week. I better choose when I use them. Whereas this was just like, throw them on. I agree. You know, this will be okay. Well, so other shows, Silo with with, With with the King Common. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Not a bad show. It's decent. Um, we did rip into on the on the Eurostar home, uh, Olivier, who was on the trip with us, who uh, he got a notification on his iPad while we were all talking that a new episode of Silo was out. So we kind of started talking about Silo and he started describing it. And I was like, oh, so it's Snowpiercer. And he was like, yeah, it's snow, it's Snowpiercer, but it's like vertical in the ground. Yeah, <laughs> it's like an up and down Snowpiercer. <laughs> and like literally everything you do, he's like, and and like the higher you go, the wealthier you are or whatever. It's like, okay, it's Snowpiercer. Like, and if you leave, you're dead. Oh, it's Snowpiercer. Like, it it's literally, literally is. It, and it's funny because it's actually designed like the the set is kind of similar where it's almost a little steampunky. Like how the original, I, I never watched the TV show, but the no, Chris Evans either. movie. The movie, yeah. That the guy who did Parasite did. Um, yeah. It does kind of even look like it. We, we Let, made fun of it. A lot of, less violent. A lot less we, violent. We made fun of it on the Eurostar and we basically narrowed it down to like the, the pitch when they were trying to get funding for the, was like, <laughs> imagine Snowpiercer, but we snuck, we stuck the train in the ground. And it was like, there we go. Will you give us $20 million to make this? 
Yeah, it, it it is. It is very similar to that. And I really like that movie. So maybe that's why I kind of like the show. Although the movie is better than the show. The movie Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer the movie is, is better, better than, than TV than show Silo. silo. Okay. The, yeah, the horizontal Snowpiercer is better than the vertical Silo. And the book is better than all of it. Well, they're, they're separate books. <laughs> oh, they, oh, they are Silo books? Yeah, yeah. It's based oh off God. a book series. I want to know if that book was written before or after Snowpiercer. It's actually the same author. That would be the, it's not, I don't know. I don't know, but that would be the, that would be the kick. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's, uh, we also talked about it, you and I, the, the biggest downside is that common is in it. And now that you showed me that video of the teacher pretending to be common, I could not get it out of my head of every time he talks, he just goes, AI. <laughs> because of AI. <laughs> I'll get I have to get that as a drop for us. <laughs> yeah, that will have to be added to the to the soundboard. But and yeah, then I, then, uh, well, I got I got uh, more TV shows, Eddie. I'm so, I'm, so do I. Uh, well, I, I, got, I started I watching I started watching Platonic. Which is the Seth Rogen Rose Byrne? It's basically like it's exactly every, this is another it's one. Seth, it's every Seth Rogen movie. No, it's better. It's literally Neighbors, the show Neighbors, except instead of them being a married couple, they're just best friends. It's exactly to, the same. Just to clarify, you mean the American show Neighbors, T- not the movie, very, not in the movie, not the very popular Australian soap opera Neighbors. No. Just Although the, she is Australian, so that mixes yeah. it up a little bit. Just, just for our listeners, just to clear things up. Um, yeah, this feels like Seth Rogen's career in a nutshell. Yeah. And I, I quite like Seth Rogen. Like, he's very good at what he does. Yeah. But you got to be in the Seth Rogen mood because... I, I don't it, like it when he's when it's, like, too druggy. Like, not the biggest fan of Pineapple Express. Arguably one of his best movies, but yeah. I know, but I just it it's just like a little too much for me. Yeah. No, I get that. But I mean it's it's he's got one speed. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he's I think he's, he's really he's funny. A, I, I like him. He, he's he's got one pitch and you just gotta like that pitch. You know, yeah. it's like that's that's all he's gonna give you. But And that show's pretty good. It's it's thirty minutes, it's a comedy, which is nice. It's not as good, let's say, as like season one of Ted Lasso because it doesn't have that like warm heartedness that Ted Lasso also had in addition to being funny. But it actually is probably funnier than season one of Ted Lasso. It has some really good points. Like I watched it while I was having breakfast alone at a restaurant on Tuesday morning. And the woman came up to me and asked what I was watching because she said I seemed to be really enjoying myself. You and fucking I, loser. And I told you her, fucking loser. And I told her, I don't have Nothing. anything on. <laughs> you absolutely I'm just loser. sitting here laughing at myself. That would have been more respectful. <laughs> but yeah. And then lastly, I've been watching The Bear, season two. All right. Uh, and we, it is... We don't have to talk about the bear. Both of us have had podcasts ruined by bear talk recently, <laughs> so we can leave the bear talk out. Go, go, listen to uh, amazing. Just watch the bear. It's amazing. Right, there we go. That's the recommendation. I've been watching the Tour de France documentary on Netflix. Oh, I've watched I part made, of that. <laughs> you, fell, you fellas, you fell asleep to part of an episode too, and I have to say, it is a good documentary. Uh, if you even if you do not like cy- professional cycling and the Tour de France, 
it's interesting. Rank it so, in the other sports documentary shows. Um, of the documentaries of that type, I would say it's only behind for me the best versions of like Last Chance You. Wow. So better than Formula for, One. Yeah, it's better because a lot of the Formula One documentary is faked. Like they oh, add in that. yeah, they they add in dialogue and stuff afterwards that which they semi do in the Tour de France one, but it's not as obvious and it's not as important. It's it's like narrative fake uh commentary. But the Formula One one suffers from that element. It's hard for me because like obviously some of the early hard knocks are super good, but I'm just so tired of hard knocks that it gets like pushed down in my mind where I rank it. But also hard knocks deserves credits for kind of establishing this type of documentary too. Yeah. But yeah. I would say the best are like those college football last chance you. I enjoyed the basketball, but the college football was just better because there were more characters and they were even dumber. So like the that, that that was better and there was just more controversy. But this is good. And I think this is a very good entry point if you don't watch professional cycling. Similar to the Formula One. You know, if you if it isn't a sport that you've paid attention to, I think you could watch it and come away from it thinking, I'm never gonna watch cycling, but I enjoyed that. Or it might be with the Tour de France, you know, only a few days away from starting, this might be the thing that makes you watch it and then decide, you know what, I'm going to watch a little bit of the Tour de France and I'll appreciate like what's happening and I'll know some of the people and I'll know the team names and stuff. I would think what I'll say it also does better than the Formula One is it covers a wider range of the participants, whereas the Formula One like focuses per team per year. This is like you get an episode focusing on Yumbo Visma, an episode focusing on, you know, each team. So that's a little bit better. Yeah, I, I the 10 minutes I watched, I was into. <laughs> it will make you seem and we obviously obviously there was a cyclist who died in the in a tour of Switzerland uh, two weeks ago. It does make it seem so this is a difficult uh, comment to kind of reconcile with that fact. It does make it seem like there's a crash in the Tour de France every four minutes. Like it, it's just like endless crashes. Whereas obviously the reality is most stages you'll go, you know, there might be a minor crash, but most stages don't involve major crashes and you go hours without any type of incident. But it does be like stage seven, huge crash. He's hurt. Stage eight, huge crash. He's hurt. So there's that bit. They're just trying to rank, kind of increase the drama. But aside from that, it's, it's really good. Anything else you've been watching? Um, no, I've been on my Wild what West about YouTubes? Oh, oh, Wild, Wild West docs. Is this yeah, because been... we talked about visiting Tombstone? <laughs> it isn't. I'd already been pre-your visit. I'd already kind of... So the TV show I'm like slightly re-watching, which a TV show also came up on our trip. Tombstone? Deadwood. I, know. I have been I have been re-watching clips of Deadwood. Uh, and then I'd never seen the Wild Bill movie from the mid-90s. Um, and I decided I would watch that in clips on YouTube. It's completely bad shit. Did crazy. you ever watch the one? It it didn't get a lot of traction, but people say it's actually a really, really good movie. The 
assassination of Jesse. The, was Jesse, it like the, the one coward? With, the, one, the one with Brad Pitt. And yeah, and uh, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Is it yeah, Casey Affleck? Casey Affleck's in it, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a good movie. It's a slow burn. Again, it's it's a really there's not a lot happening for a lot of that movie, but if it if you like the western concept, then yeah, it's enjoyable. But if you don't, I think you're going to find that a bit of a struggle. I like yeah, Casey Wild, Affleck. Yeah, I mean the Wild Bill movie. Jeff Bridges played Wild Bill in this m- m- movie from 1995, which based on the 10, 11 clips that I've watched, which probably equate to about half of the movie, <laughs> uh, completely historically inaccurate. But kind of entertaining, but you know, there's he does a pretty good job of playing Wild Bill, but you know, it's a little out there. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm contemplating. I'm not a you know I'm not a big rewatcher. I'm very close to pulling the trigger on completely rewatching Deadwood. Wow, I'm which I've already done once in my life. I I I'm pretty close. You've already rewatched it once in your life. Already rewatched so it. So you've once. watched it twice already, plus clips. Watched it twice plus clips. So probably about seventeen times in total, if you throw in the clips. Um, I'm contemplating the like July could be. Let me rewatch the three seasons of Deadwood. Wow, it's and not a movie? lot of TV. Maybe and then the movie. I might skip the movie. You've seen the movie though. I have, yeah, oh yeah, I've seen the movie, and the movie's not bad. It's just I don't know if I necessarily need to rewatch the movie, the TV show. I definitely need to. Tombstone is on like almost every day on tele on cable television. It's unbelievable. Yeah, got some great lines. You know, I'll be your Huckleberry. Huckleberry didn't come out right. Yeah, but you didn't say it right either. <laughs> He's like, I'll be your Huckleberry. <laughs> Watching that movie makes me feel sad about Val Kilmer. I agree. I mean, that's an all-time performance from Val Kilmer. He's so good in it. Yeah. Like, I could watch him do shit like that all day. (laughs) And now his face just looks weird and it's just... He can't talk. (laughs) He can't take him seriously as an actor, whereas in that, it's, it's... I would put that on... Like, if we were drafting best supporting actor roles of all time performances of all time i think val kilmer and tombstone should make the top 10 shortlist yeah actually i i don't think i can disagree i mean i'm sure there are a lot of movies we're forgetting but off the top of my head it's it's just he's just so good no he steals the show and then also when you know like his commitment like the sweating and stuff was real like he was yeah. himself like <laughs> uncomfortable so he, he actually gave Ill. himself tb <laughs> yeah that's what that's why his face looks weird now years of tb will do that to you that's uh, funny but yeah that's about all i've got yeah me too all right well i guess with that we'll uh call it a wrap talk to you later See you. See you.